4th of July, and it's Life Spring Podcast number 36. Steve is one of the lunatic fringe. Lunatic fringe, lunatic fringe, lunatic fringe. Welcome. Welcome to Life Spring. Yes, it is the 4th of July, and yes, I'm Steve Webb, and I'm really not a lunatic. I'm sometimes maybe a fringe kind of guy, but uh, I'm not a lunatic. Trust me. If you're new, you'll find out. If you're not new, you already know. If you're here from iTunes for the first time, welcome to you too. iTunes just uh, incorporated podcasting into their uh, uh, whole suite of uh, things that they support. And we're excited about that. They've got a few things that they're still ironing out over there for those of us podcasters, and I think maybe ease of use for users. But if you're here because of iTunes for the first time, hey, we're glad you're here. Oh boy, today is one for the books. Last week I hinted to you that this edition of the Lifespring Podcast had something to do with an offer you can't refuse. Just wait, you are in for a fascinating ride. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, remember, it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, your station in life. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? LifeSpring is about answering that question and the question of how and why the answer can and does affect your life today. What will you find here? You'll find music, conversation, and reasons to believe. If you'd like to email me, you can send text emails, audio comments in the form of MP3 files or whatever to steve.lifespring at gmail.com. Also, you can phone in comments to 206-600-LIKE. I would love to hear your voice. I appreciate any comments that I get, positive or negative, it's all good. And so uh, I encourage you to uh, contact me in one way or the other. Also, uh, if you want to Skype me, uh, the Skype uh, ID is LifeSpring underscore podcast. Had uh, some new people uh, listen to that last week and Skype me. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on their contact list. They're on my contact list. And uh, one of them is a guy from, I, I'm sorry, I don't have it here at this computer that I'm working at. Uh, but he's from Bradenton, Florida. Hey, guess what? I spent part of my childhood in Bradenton. Maybe I'll tell you about that sometime. Hey, I've got some exciting, exciting news. Not only is this going to be a fantastic podcast today, but uh, I've been kind of sitting on this until things got uh, kind of finalized. But I, I, I indicated to you earlier, oh, several weeks ago, that this is going to be just a fantastic summer for the LifeSpring Podcast. Here's another one of those great announcements. For those of you that are not aware, there is a huge evangelistic crusade that happens every year in Southern California and in several places around the world. And it's put on by Harvest, harvest harvest.org. Greg Laurie, who many of you are probably familiar with, is uh, the one who is the evangelist at these events. And Harvest got in touch with Craig Patchett over at the uh, Godcast Network several weeks ago. This was after Michael Gohagen did the, uh, the podcast for the 50th anniversary celebration at Disneyland. Well, Harvest got in touch with Craig Patchett and said, hey, we would like you to get involved with us for the Harvest Crusade at Anaheim. So anyway, it's going to be at the stadium where the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim play. It's going to be July 15, 16, and 17 at Angel Stadium. 
the people that are going to be there. Now, that's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All right, now here's the schedule. On Friday, you've got Casting Crowns and Delirious. Gates open at 5.30. Crusade begins at 7 o'clock. On Saturday, gates open at 5.30. These are all p.m., by the way. Pre-concert is 6.30. Cutlass and Freestyle Motorcycle Exhibition is going to take place. And then the Crusade begins at 7 o'clock on Saturday with Toby Mac, Cutlass, and Jeremy Camp. And then on Sunday, 5.30, gates open. Crusade begins at 7 o'clock. The musical artists will be Jars of Clay, Crystal Lewis, and Stephen Curtis Chapman. Of course, Greg Laurie is going to be preaching at each one of these events. You can get more information over at harvest.org and just click on Crusades and you'll find out all the information you need. But listen, Craig Patchett and I are both going to be covering this crusade. Craig has a few things he's going to do. I'm going to do a few things uh, during the crusade itself. It is going to be a fantastic podcasting event. We are so excited to be involved with the Harvest people. Of course, Harvest uh, Church is right here in Riverside where I live. I've known of Greg Laurie for many, many years. I have not met him. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be going to interview him and get him uh, get that interview ready for podcasting during the event. I'm very excited about being involved here. Keep listening for more details. This is going to be just a, a great summer. Now, let's get into the show. Now, my guest today was at one time the primary target of a massive 14-agency government task force that had one assignment, to bring down the mafia's youngest and most financially powerful new superstar. At the height of his mob activity, he was one of the biggest money earners the mob had seen since Al Capone. He earned billions of dollars for New York City's Colombo crime family, for which they paid him millions of dollars per week. At the age of 35, he was number 18 on Fortune Magazine's list of the 50 most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses in America. Michael Francis has a story that is completely and totally unique. His enemies included Rudy Giuliani and John Gotti, both of whom he was able to foil. But there was one who would bring his life as a prince of the mafia to an end, making him the only high-ranking official of the mafia to ever quit the mob, refuse government protection, and live to tell about it. I met Michael Franzese last week at a little bistro in a beach community here in Southern California. We shared a small outdoor table next to a busy street. You'll hear the cars driving by, you'll hear the landscape maintenance crews, and people at surrounding tables. It was a typical Southern California June morning. It started with gray, overcast skies that we call June gloom here in Southern California. But as the morning progressed, the clouds cleared until the sky was a brilliant blue. The temperature started at about 60 degrees Fahrenheit and warmed up 15 or so degrees by the time we said our goodbyes later in the morning. Now, as I waited for Michael to arrive, I couldn't help but remember the movies that I've seen about Mafia Dons and their meetings with long black stretch limos driving up to the curb, some goon jumping out of the front seat to open the back door for their sharply dressed boss. And I knew this was not likely to happen on this particular morning, and I was right. When Michael Francis arrived, he was driving his own black SUV, and he was wearing a Notre Dame jersey and Levi's. But there was no mistaking him for anyone else either. He has the look. He has the dark, handsome features that you would expect of a mafia boss. There's perfectly combed black hair, a million-dollar smile, and the easygoing charm of a man comfortable with himself. Any jitters I may have had waiting for him to arrive quickly melted away as he warmly shook my hand when he arrived at our table. 
We spoke for a couple of minutes, and after getting a really tasty pastry and a cup of the house latte, I turned the recorder on. What you are about to hear is the nearly unedited conversation I had with Michael Francis. The only editing that took place was to enhance the sound, and uh, he, he took a phone call at one point in the conversation, and I took that part of it out. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Francis. Well, I'm with Michael Franzese. Is that the, the correct pronunciation? Yes. Franzese. Yes. Because I, I saw on your, your website, uh, one of somebody introduced you as Franzese, and I thought, eh, that's probably not right. Which is the more correct? Actually, that's correct also. It's, oh, it more, it's more the Italian way of saying it. Okay. Because it's spelled Z-E-S-E at the end. Right. But we Americanize it. It's Franzese. Makes it easy. Okay. Either way. Works. Either way. Okay. Well, Michael... Can you tell me just a little bit of your, your history as to uh, how you came to where you are today? Yeah, my uh, background, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, uh, a little different than most people, I think, in that my dad was uh, heavily involved, and I'm a member of a major crime family back there, Colombo Organized Crime Family, the Cousin Oster family. And uh, I grew up, you know, in that atmosphere. Like I said, significantly different than most of the people around me. I'd say. But, um, you know, my dad was great. I uh, certainly loved him. He was a great father. Um, and uh, he didn't originally want that life for me. He wanted me to be a professional, be a doctor, go to school. And uh, I was on that course until uh, he was indicted in the 60s for some very serious crimes. And eventually went to prison for 50 years. Wow. About that time, I was a uh, pre-med student at Hofstra University, and Joe Colombo, who was the boss of the Colombo family, was upset because his son was indicted, and he was claiming there was no mafia, there was no Lacoste Nostra, Italian-Americans were being harassed by the government, the FBI, and he, uh, he made us all come down to uh, 69th Street and 3rd Avenue in Manhattan, picking the FBI building to stop the harassment. Right. I remember when that kind of thing was in yeah. the news a lot. No, it was... It was major news every day. Right. And, uh, I was excited, you know, I, I grew up disliking law enforcement, to say the least, and uh, I believed until this moment, uh, well, it's not a belief, it's a certainty that my dad was framed on that case. Really? Oh, yeah, it was a very bad case. You know, I say it all the time, we, we both did many, many things in our life that were against the law. Right. But that particular case, he was innocent of. And so I was, you know, I had a big resentment for law enforcement. I was down there every day. I saw this as a way to get my dad out of jail, maybe help him overturn his case. I would uh, leave Hofstra and go down, go into Manhattan and grab a sign and pick at the FBI every day. And, uh, How many of you were, were there? We started out with, uh, there was less than 100 the first day I went. And uh, it eventually, Joe Colombo turned this into the Italian-American Civil Rights League. It ended up, we had several thousand people on the line for several months. Wow. And it consummated in a big, huge rally where there was well over 100,000 people in Columbus Circle. Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had two of them, actually, because it lasted about two years. And uh, Joe Colombo was at the second one that we had. was There was an assassination attempt on his life. You might remember he was shot. I was about 10 feet away from when it happened. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. It was uh, my first real experience like that. But uh, he was seriously wounded, eventually died of the wounds. That was the end of the league. But during that time, I met a lot of my dad's friends, made guys that were part of the life. And now, a big, 
when did you become aware of your dad's involvement in in the family or the life or however you refer to it? You had to be living in a vacuum not to know it because my dad, in, in the 60s, he was kind of the John Gotti in terms of law enforcement uh, investigations and media attention. Okay. He was always in the news. And, you know, they wrote everything you could imagine about him. He was an enforcer, he was the underboss, he was the heir apparent to the Colombo family, and all that stuff. So, I mean, my dad never sat down and told me a thing. Right. Everything I heard was from outsiders and from reading the newspaper, hearing it on the news. Okay. But I was totally aware of it. Right. Uh, I had a graduation party from high school, and uh, my dad put up a big tent in the backyard. We had about 500 people there. And all my friends from school, and within the next couple of days, I go back to school, and everybody got a subpoena. Whoever whoever drove their car to, the, to my neighborhood, right? They took the license plate number down, and cops, and they uh, they gave everybody a subpoena to go to court to ask them what they were doing at my house. <laughs> so things like that happened regularly. You know? Yeah. But uh, so I mean, I knew, but uh, didn't care. I mean, okay. I loved my dad. I right. Didn't care what I read. You know, law enforcement to me was the enemy. Anyhow, they were lying all the time. So that's how the mentality I had. Okay. Uh, but. Um, you know, while walking on that line and meeting a lot of my dad's friends, that had a big influence on me. You know, why are you going to school? You realize who your father is. you got to get on the street. you got to help him out. That's what life's really all about. Just the opposite of what my dad had taught me. Right. And uh, eventually I went to see him. He was in Leavenworth Penitentiary. And I went to see him. I used to visit him monthly. And I said, I don't want to go to school anymore. I, I, I need to get out and help you get out of jail. He was upset. He wasn't happy with that decision at all. But he knew my mind was made up. And um, you know, what he said to me is, I remember like yesterday, if you need to be on the street, you got to be on the street the right way. His mind the right way was to become part of his life. Right. So it was kind of a start for me. Okay. I was 28 years old. Okay. All right. And. So from what I under, what I remember from your talk at Spirit West Coast is you, you went through a bit of a, an apprenticeship. Yeah. What my dad told me, he said, this was his instruction uh, to me about the life. He said, go home, somebody will meet you, just do whatever you told me. That was my education from my dad about the life. Right. Never, uh, never got into detail, never told me this is what it's all about, never warned me. He asked me one question. He said, if you had to do something serious, you think you're capable of doing it? I said, if I had to do it, I guess I could do it. And that was my response. That was that was my qualification in my dad's eyes. But, you know, I guess he knew it would be all my life. So, um, he, um, so within a couple of weeks, the captain and the family came and picked me up. And brought me down to see the new boss, who was Joe Cornblatt, in a sense. And uh, I met with him, and he said to me, basically... I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of the life? I said, yeah, that's what my dad wants. That's what I want. He got irritated with me. He said, this is not your dad's decision. It's yours. Right. Is this what you want? I said, yeah. You know, it's what I want. You know, blind, for me, it was blind faith. My dad said, if you want, I'm ready. And um, so from that point on, what he said to me is, uh, Here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family. That means if your mother is sick and dying, you're at her deathbed, family calls you to service, you leave your mother's side, you come to serve the family, because we're number one in your life from now on. And uh, he said if we, when we believe, or if we believe that you earned the privilege or the honor to become a member, we'll let you know. And that was my instruction. 
and uh, for the next, for the next, I guess, year and a half, I was in kind of like a pledge period where I had to do whatever I was told to do, you know, menial test to something serious and, and everything in between, Steve. After about a year and a half, I was called into a room again. It was late. It was, happened to be Halloween night, 1975, just a coincidence. And uh, it was on that night that I took an oath and became a made member of the Combo Conference. I was 24 years old. Now, what what does that mean to be a made member? That's that's your official designation when you take <coughs> excuse me take the oath and become a member. Okay. That's the terminology. It's that you're a made man. Okay. You've been straightened out. Okay. Yeah. Right. right. And you're a made man. Interesting. Okay. So uh, I was, it was myself and five other gentlemen that night that uh, we were inducted. We did it one at a time. And I took an oath that night, and uh, it was serious. I mean, the boss was in there with all the officials, underboss, the consigliere, all the captains. And, uh, you know, I held out my hand in front of the boss who cut my finger, blood dropped on the floor. And uh, I cupped my hands and took a picture of the saint. It was a Catholic altar card, put it in there, and uh, I was an underboss, let it burn, but it just burned up really quick. It wasn't it hurt. But, uh, and the boss said to me that night, and this is what I repeat over and over, because it was startling to me that growing up a Catholic, being in Catholic school my whole life, all the boy, I had never heard this term, but he said, tonight you are being born again into the Cousin Oscar, into this thing of ours, a new life. And um, I didn't realize the significance of born again. Born again. I just, you know, you're born again. violate the oath you take or betray your brothers in this life and you're going to burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Wow. And uh, he said, you accept? And I said, yes, I do. Now, those weren't just words to you, though, were they? Or what, yeah, it, it, it felt like a, a, an oath to you. I mean, you weren't just saying it. Or, no, it was, uh, it was very serious. I mean, it's, look, I took it very seriously then. I take it very seriously today. That's a serious life. I mean, you're, you're committing your life a whole new lifestyle. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, contrary to the life we normal people would live. Uh-huh. You know, you're living, you're violating the laws of God and man on a daily basis. I mean, that's the philosophy, that's what's behind it. Uh, you know, th- that life is not, people think it's a, it's a business and it's a job. It's not a job, it's a way of life. It's a whole new culture that you're entering. It's got its own set of rules, its own philosophy, its own punishment its own consequences so it's very serious right and uh, I, I realized it at that moment if you didn't realize it up until then you realize it then okay um, but you know that was the start of it for me and uh, you know at that point I became very motivated really to do two things one was to get my dad out of prison right and secondly was to uh, was to make money because my dad had explained to me in that life, money translates to power. And if you want to succeed in the life, you gotta, you got to bring in money. Right. Basically, that's it. And I was driven to do both of those things and ended up accomplishing both. And then I made a lot of money. And uh, the family was happy with that. Right. And I got my dad out of prison on parole. I certainly contributed to that. I was the deciding factor. But I, I did a lot of the work in finally getting him out on parole. Wow. So, I mean, in, that, in terms of that, it was pretty successful. 
So uh, how long was it before you were able to get him out on parole? He did uh, He did 10 years the first time, and then he was paroled. Okay. So 10 years on 50 was pretty good back then. But since then, he's been, my dad's 86. He's done about 29 years since 1970. Wow. Because he violated his parole four times. Each time for associating with other parents. Okay. And uh, he got various sentences, you know, on his, his parole violations. Eight years, three years, four years, two years. So he's done an accumulation of time over the years. Wow. So he's still alive? He's still alive, yeah. Okay. And is, is he still in New York? He is. Is his health good? Very good. In good shape. He, uh, he made the prison time work for him and that he stayed in shape during that time. Uh-huh. Okay. But, um, you, know, we, you know, it's an interesting relationship. I mean, when all of these things occurred and I renounced the life publicly, he and I didn't speak for 10 years. Really? Oh, it was dangerous because the, the word on the street was I was going to become a witness. Because you don't just renounce the life and do nothing. Everybody naturally assumes that the next step is you're going to go around testifying against everybody. Right. And um, so that was a dangerous situation both for me and him because he sponsored me. He proposed me into the life. Okay. Bring somebody in like that. You know, you're in jeopardy if it goes bad, so to speak. Right. So we... Uh, this was occurring before it occurred. I had sent him a message. We were both in prison, and I told him that uh, he's probably not going to understand what I'm going to do. But uh, my only uh, assurance to you is I'm not going to hurt anybody. Okay. And, um, so he was able to take that and just say, I don't know what my son's doing, but he's not going to hurt anybody. Right. And until or unless I did hurt somebody, I guess. You know, even though it's, uh, it's serious to announce the life. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, you know, my dad had standing in the life. He was in prison during some difficult times, so we were both able to survive what happened. Let's put it that way. Okay, so that was going to be one of my questions, is is how did you get out and survive? Because I've heard it said that there's, there's only one way out. Steve, there's only one answer to that, and it's, uh, it's an answer that I believe God has laid a foundation for me because I speak in a lot of secular events, a lot of uh, Christian events, obviously, but no matter where I speak, when I speak, if I open it up for questions, the first question is, how are you still alive? Right. Because, quite honestly, you don't walk away from that life, not enter a witness protection program, or run away and right. live. It's never been done before, to my knowledge. I've never heard of it. Right. Um, Neither is anybody else. Right. That's why they've predicted my demise so many times, all law enforcement people and everything else. But it's very difficult to explain because so much, so many things occurred over the years. And when I look back, God navigated such a course for me that it, it only could be his hand in this. And I can describe incident after incident after incident um, that God had a different plan for me. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way. They can come up with all their different theories and, you know, every other thing that they want to say. Because right. if people don't want to face the truth, then they'll come up with, you know, sure, uh, like like atheists do. Exactly. Every other reason. But um, the truth of the matter, God has just got his hand in all of this, and he's protected. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, 
sometimes I don't understand because I'm not always pleasing <laughs> to the Lord. <laughs> I know that feeling. His enemies are at peace with him, and uh, you know that's been my that's been my inspiration from the very first time I read that verse, locked in a prison cell many years ago. Right. I said, if I can try to do the right thing as far as God's concerned, then maybe I can survive this. You might have a different plan for me. Having no idea what that plan was, right. having no idea where I was going to end up, had no clue what I was going to do when I got out of prison with all the things that were coming on me and people mad at me in the street and the government's trying to make a witness. they got contracts on me all over. They won't let me out in the yard because they're afraid I'm going to get killed. I spent almost three years in solitary. Wow. I mean, it, I had no idea what to do. I mean, I just had no clue. Mm. It, was a, it was finally after so many years of saying that I accepted Christ for self-serving reasons. Forgive me my sins. Okay, I'm going to accept you. Right. But never surrendering to him until I finally broke down and said, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm knowledgeable now in my Bible. I've read it. I believe in this. The evidence is there. This is the Word of God. And uh, I'm going to trust you. Yeah. And that's, that's what it came down to for me. But that was a process, too, because yeah. I was pretty stubborn. Yeah, well, I understand that part of it, too. <laughs> All right, so let's um, back up a little bit. Um, how did you find yourself in prison? What happened there? Well, originally, I met my wife, uh, the lady who's now my wife. Yeah. Who led me to the Lord. Right. That's part of the story I want to hear, too. So. Okay. Among many things that I was doing during that time, I was, like I said, successful financially. They made me a captain in uh, 1980 after five years of being a soldier. Okay. And uh, I was doing a lot of different things. I was very aggressive on the street. And um, I got met somebody, and I got into the movie business. Why not? You know? And uh, I was producing these B-movies. During that time, it was the breakdance era. Okay. I love musicals. Okay. And uh, Leon Isaac Kennedy approached me about doing a breakdance movie. He was a big actor at the time in uh, penitentiary films and stuff like that. So I said, okay, if we can shoot the film in Florida, I'll do it, because I used to like to stay in Florida. And uh, we did that. We brought in 50 dancers from L.A. to be the core dancers in the film, and then we used local people for the rest. And one of the gals on this set was this 19-year-old little girl, Camille Garcia, that I met poolside one day. Mm -hmm. And uh, she just blew me away as far as her looks were concerned. And I introduced myself to her as the producer and tried to meet her a few times for a cup of coffee. And she always was very courteous and said, okay, I'll meet you. And every time I went, she never showed up. <laughs> and she did that for quite some time. So. I was really, uh, you know, my interest was really at a peak then, but sure. one night uh, we had a cast meeting, and coming out of the meeting I saw her, she was upset, she was crying, and you know, I approached her, what's wrong? She said, you know, I need to go home, uh, I don't like what's going on on the movie set, the first time I'm away from home, and uh, I'm a young Christian girl, and uh, things are not agreeing with me. Uh -huh. I said, what do you mean, I'm a Catholic, explain that to right, me, right. I don't understand that. And, um, you know, basically she, you know, Steve, she was just different. I mean, she, uh, she held herself differently. She just kind of stayed away from the pack, just did her thing. I mean, normal, she loved to dance and stuff like that, but, I mean, she just kept away from a lot of the things that go on a movie set. Right. And, uh, you know, long story short, uh, I fell in love with this girl and realized that my life was a direct contradiction to everything that she believed in because she would talk openly about Jesus to me. Accepting Christ and all of that, which 
you know, I was, okay, that's great. I mean, I was really appeasing her more than anything else. You just wanted to be close to her. Yeah, I just wanted to be close and be nice to her and all of that. But, you know, I wasn't really buying into that at that point. Right. I mean, you know, you know, at that point you feel, I felt kind of I was the master of my own destiny. Right. I was making millions of dollars a week. Right. I was a captain in a combo for the Crown. I had 300 guys under me. I went to trial five times. Rudy Giuliani indicted me on a major case. I beat all five cases. Uh, Were they good cases? You just had better lawyers than them, or what? Giuliani's, you know, I don't think any of them were really good cases. It okay. was never a question where, you know, I mean, I was a major target. I had the name, I had the pedigree, and the government was after me all the time. And, and those sloppy cases they put against me. Okay. Giuliani's case, I should never have even been indicted. Wow. But, okay. Uh, and it turned out, you know, well for me. I was a lead defendant, but it was a seven-month trial. And uh, anytime you're in, in a federal courthouse, it's serious. Especially then, like now, when you're giving you 20 years for a count on racketeering and they run them consecutive. Giuliani had told me at the time if I got convicted, he was going to give me double what my father got. Wow. Give me 100 years. So I mean, it was serious, but I had a good track record. So. You know, who's better than me? You know, I got my own jet plane, I got a helicopter, I got a house in Florida, a house in L.A., a house in New York. Yeah. Now, you said you were making millions of dollars a week? Yeah, in the gas business. Wow. Which was uh, eventually what I was indicted for and pled guilty to. Okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, the allegation was that we, we defrauded the government out of $2 billion in gasoline taxes, so it was a big case. Wow. And, uh, my that was $2 billion with a B, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. My partner, uh, Larry Iarizzo, uh, ended up testifying against me or cooperating against me. So, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it would have been a tough case to win, but I don't know that I couldn't have won it because, you know, Steve, they never, they never had me directly involved with anything. Okay. And that was the problem with the government's case. It was always a witness or hearsay. They never had me on tape. That, Damaging. They never had any kind of direct evidence like that. It was kind of them building the case around me. Right. And, uh, but they tried so hard, and I think that's why I was fortunate. But um, realizing this case, I had not been indicted yet on this case when Camille and I met, but I knew it was coming. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing to me when I look back is that realizing my life was contradicting hers and that I loved her, all of a sudden, Something that was never even on my radar screen. How am I going to move away from this life to be with her? She became more important. You know, in a way, I look back now, and the major influence in my life to that point had been my father. I mean, hands down. Right. And, and other guys in that life that I looked up to, that I wanted to emulate, you know, as a, as a soldier in that life. And uh, Camille came in and kind of took the place, importance-wise, in my life. She became more important. And I think that's how God started the change for me. Right. By letting this young woman come in and replace, you know, my dad in that life. And, uh, so I started in my head trying to devise a way to move away from the life. So knowing this case coming down, believe it or not, out of, out of this horrible situation, I was saying, oh, this is good, you know. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take a plea when this indictment comes down. I'll try to make an arrangement with the government. They've been trying to get me so long. If I took a plea, they'd probably go along with it. Right. Try to get a minimum amount of time I can. Right. And uh, and this was the plan. So I eventually was indicted. Long story short, uh, made a deal to plead a racketeering, a 
10-year sentence, $15 million restitution. I surrender a lot of my assets, the plane and all that kind of stuff. Can I answer this? Sure, absolutely. I mean, yep. my family. That's my wife. Yep. Got to take the wife. Honey? Hey, baby, what are you doing? You okay? Just wake up? Okay. Okay, honey, listen, let, let Daddy call you back because I'm, I'm doing what to do right now. Take the plea. And I'm going to take the plea. I told Camille, I said, listen, uh, I'm going to have to do some time, maybe five years. Her response to that. Well, to hear Camille's response to this news that Michael is about to go down for what would be a 10-year sentence, you'll have to listen to next week's LifeSpring podcast. There's still much of his story to tell, and you won't want to miss any of it. You'll hear about his prison years, the threat to his life, his parole and return to prison where he did more than two years in solitary confinement. And you'll hear about what Michael Franzese is doing today. It's an amazing story. And if you just can't wait to hear the rest of Michael's story or for more details on his life, you can buy Michael's autobiography called Blood Covenant at michaelfranzese.com. Or there's also a link at the show notes page where you can buy the book too. Compelling reading to be sure. That's Blood Covenant. Now, show notes are at lifespringpodcast.com. You'll find a link to Michael's website there where you'll also find a video that you can watch about Michael, too. Also on the show notes page is a podcast player for your family and friends, podcatching software so you can easily subscribe to the Lifespring Podcast if you're not an iTunes user, and it's all right there at lifespringpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed today's show, if it's been compelling listening for you, a vote over there at Podcast Alley would really be appreciated. Remember, you can vote from the show notes website. And remember, this is a new month. July is a brand new month. If you haven't voted yet for the podcast, now's the time to do it. I could really use your vote right now. Please take a minute and do just that. Remember, LifeSpring is where we want to tell you how being a follower of Christ can make a difference in your life today. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, your station in life. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? LifeSpring is about answering that question and the question of how and why the answer can and does affect your life today. Be here next week for part two of my interview with Michael Francis. I'm your host, Steve Webb, and I'll see you next time.